0: The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to episode number 169 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. In this episode, I have the honor of speaking with Maria Lehman, the director of U.S. infrastructure at GHD, an official nominee for the worldwide ASCE President Elect 2022. Maria will be talking about her vision for the civil engineer in the future, and to me, I think it's a really exciting one. I'm your host Anthony Fasano. I am a licensed professional engineer who practiced as a civil engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then. I've written a book entitled, Engineer Your Own Success, and have traveled the world helping engineers. I've also had the honor of authoring the American Society of Civil Engineers Careers and Leadership column for the past few years. So let me just kind of set the scene for really these next two episodes. So as I mentioned, Maria will be my guest for today, and she'll be running in the ASCE election against Peter Moore, both very accomplished civil engineering professionals. And Peter's going to be a guest on the next episode. And these kind of two episodes got set up because I either know each of them or I know their colleagues and just made it happen. And we thought it'd be a great opportunity to have two accomplished civil engineers on the podcast like themselves. They're talking about their careers and their career journeys, and they've given some great career advice. And then towards the end of each episode, they talk a little bit about their nomination for ASCE president-elect and kind of their vision for what it would look like if they were elected. So it was kind of a good way to a lot of our listeners who I know are ASC members to kind of meet them and get to know them a little bit. So I'm definitely, definitely very excited about both of these episodes. Because as I said, they're very accomplished. What they've done in their careers and the types of projects that they worked on and the people that they've been able to help has been inspiring. Now, before we get started, this is a free podcast, and our sponsors do help us keep it free, so we ask that you please support them. And now I'd like to recognize and welcome back our sponsor for this episode, ACI. Are you a member of the American Concrete Institute? ACI is a worldwide community of 30,000 professionals, educators, and students in more than 100 countries. It is the premier global community dedicated to the best use of concrete. Starting on January 1st this year, ACI launched a new member's benefit. ACI members now have free access through annual subscriptions to all ACI University live webinars, free access to 260-plus on-demand courses, and unlimited access to the Institute's practices, including all ACI guides and reports, and symposium volumes. ACI members push the concrete industry further, adapting to new technology and investing in their careers, and are dedicated to improving concrete design materials and construction. You do not have to be an ACI member to work in the concrete industry, but if you want to exceed expectations in it, there is no better place to be. Whether you are a student just starting or have years under your belt, ACI membership ensures that no matter what changes the world brings, you will be prepared to thrive and your life's work will last for generations. Right now, ACI is offering a $30 discount on new individual and young professional memberships. Student memberships are already free. Join ACI today at concrete.org forward slash podcast three zero. That's concrete.org forward slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T, the number three, the number zero. And now I'd like to introduce our guest for the episode formally, Maria Lehman. Maria Lehman P.E. is GHD's infrastructure market leader for the United States since May of 2020. Maria was the former vice president for critical infrastructure for Parsons, COO and acting executive director of the New York State Thruway Authority and commissioner of public works for Erie County, New York. She has 40 years of diverse, increasingly responsible, multidisciplinary technical and leadership experience, both in the private and public sectors and in traditional and alternative delivery. And you're going to hear all that experience in this interview, believe me. She received her BS in civil engineering at the State University of New York at Buffalo, magna cum laude, and is a licensed professional engineer in several states. She is currently the national treasurer for the American Society of Civil Engineers and is a current nominee for the national president-elect of ASCE, as I said earlier. She has won numerous national, statewide, and local awards, including ASCE's President Medal, UB School of Engineering Alumna of the Year, and the New York State Society of Professional Engineers Engineering Manager of the Year. So let's dive into our Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week with Maria Lehman. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'm excited to welcome on our guest to the podcast for today, Maria Lehman. Maria is the Director of U.S. Infrastructure at GHD, and she's an official nominee worldwide for ASC President-Elect 2022, Maria, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast.
1: Thanks, Anthony. It's great to be here today.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm excited to get to chat with you here a little bit. And I did introduce you to our listeners earlier on in the show, but kind of in your own words, Maria, maybe we can start off by you telling them a little bit more about what it is you do today on a daily basis.
1: On a daily basis, I am trying to break silos and connect dots. We have various businesses in in five regions in the U.S. and three in Canada. And part of my role is to work with them to integrate things. So, for example, um, we have a water business and we have some step-up strategies in sustainable development and future energy. So how do we get those people to work together to provide value to our clients so as they're making investment decisions today they're good investments for 20, 30, 50 years. Things are changing so rapidly in the business that bringing people from that normally don't necessarily work together to be able to do that. So a lot of it is strategy. A lot of it is mentoring of people on how to cross disciplines within our constructed environment. And also because I've had 10 and a half years in the public sector as an appointed official, uh, five and a half as a County Commissioner of Public Works and Chief Engineer, and then five years working for the Thruway for uh, Governor Cuomo. It's different when you work on the public side. I say it's not better or worse. It's kind of like Alice in Wonderland. It's a different reality, and there's different priorities. And so understanding the differences And being able to bridge that communication helps you be more efficient and effective with clients. So, a big part of what I do is that, as well as staying on top of what's going on in the industry and what's going on now with stimulus making sure we're positioned, but also helping our private clients understand that. Because a lot of our private clients really don't understand it from a technical and political lens at the same time. I'm kind of rare breed out there that you know I have a professional engineering license and I've done those kinds of things. So it's just an interesting combination. So a lot of it is talking to a lot of people about strategy.
0: So that's great, Maria. And really what it is, is, and what I try to teach civil engineering professionals a lot is it's important to be well-rounded. And it sounds like mm-hmm. through your career, you've become very well-rounded working in the public sector, the private sector, the different positions you've been in. You've gotten obviously into a lot of the strategy of the built environment and the civil world mm-hmm. and you know what goes into that and talking to stakeholders and bringing people together, which I personally think is a really exciting aspect of civil engineering because so a lot of projects don't happen if that doesn't go mm-hmm. the right way. Correct. So, so, I think that that's really interesting, and it's exciting when I get to talk to someone like you who has so many experiences in, in so many different areas of civil engineering. And, and that being said, ASCE, of course, has unveiled their 2021 report card for America's infrastructure. Just recently, they launched it in early March. Can you kind of share with us some of the results and the grades that were given to the different sectors? Maybe like a high level overview. You don't, don't need to go into a ton of detail.
1: Our cumulative average for the first time since the first report card 1998 is a C-minus, which is, uh, I guess, a yay moment. It's always been in the Ds, but it's primarily there because a couple of our electric transmission and rail, their scores are, are in the Bs because it's private funding, primarily. There's a little bit of public funding in most of those, but in the last few years, there's been a lot of investment by the Class 1, 2, and 3 railroads, as well as in upgrading the distribution network so those two Bs is really what pulled it up. We had four Cs and 11 Ds. And most of the public infrastructure, the public facing things that we use every day are in the Ds. Right now, the funding gap that for 10 years that's been identified between all levels of government, so state, local and federal, is uh, just under $2.6 trillion needed. Additionally if you take everything we're doing now, to be able to meet what the gap is. You know, I kind of laugh. Our infrastructure is not in a midlife crisis. It's in an old age crisis. And it's all coming due at the same time. And because it's a system of systems, you see a lot of domino effect. You know, one thing here, it's the, the weakest link that causes the problem. So, you know, you saw that in Texas. The water lines are, are not necessarily buried. Sometimes they lay on the ground. You had an electric system that the distribution was fine. It's not like in the Northeast that, you know, we get lines down and and things like that. Distribution system was fine, but they didn't have insulation on their systems where they were generating and they had prolonged cold. And so that created issues. And then that cascaded into not having heat in buildings. And then that cascaded into water lines breaking. And you see this cascading effect. Um, You saw it in Michigan when you had dams fail and then all the other things that failed as a function of heavy rainfall, the bigger thing that we talked about with this infrastructure is not only do we need investment, but we have to think about everything as being a system of systems.
0: That's interesting. And I'm glad that you kind of clarified what brought the report card up because don't get me wrong, I think it's a good thing if it moves up. But at the same time, I think when a lot of people think about the infrastructure report card they're thinking about the public-facing infrastructure that you mentioned. And so if you associate the improvement in the grade with that, that's not accurate. So that's something that's important to kind of be distinguished because, you know, everyday people out there see the public-facing infrastructure. They see the bridges, the roadways that are in trouble. And just because the report card maybe have improved, it doesn't mean that that those aspects of infrastructure have improved and we need to stay focused on improving on those the failure to act economic impacts of status quo investment across infrastructure systems quantifies how the persistent failure to invest in our aging infrastructure impacts the economy. Can you maybe talk about its findings and, and really how it affects the cost to families when we don't invest in infrastructure? I think something people don't think about.
1: One of the things that's been done over time is we've done these uh, independent economic studies as ASCE on you know what the, fail- the cost of failure are and A couple of the reports were going on 10 years old. One was about five. So we redid the reports as the run-up to the report card. So it helped us with this grading. There were three reports done, one on electric transmission, uh, one on water, and one on transportation, surface transportation, and then a kind of a composite. And the composite was the one that was released right before the report card this year, And basically, it says that the cost of not investing in our infrastructure is $3,300 per family per year over the next 10 years. And that has to do with things like delays because you're sitting in traffic or potholes. We're into pothole season now where you're doing damage to a vehicle. It's about things like uninterrupted power supply and having to worry about intermittent utilities for whatever the reason is. And so it uses all that. And it's important to know it's not just about you, the individual that's being impacted, but the cost of your goods. Because if there's a disruption in the supply chain, the cost of that is eventually go- you're going to pay for it by paying more for every commodity you have, whether it's you know gas for your car, whether it's fruits and vegetables, whether it's some element component of your home. And so The studies were done so you really understand, and from our perspective, wouldn't it be better for us to kind of make that investment, that level of investment, in modernizing our infrastructure because it really needs it?
0: What I like about that is I feel like one of the challenges for civil engineers is to communicate some of these challenges to everyday citizens that aren't maybe technically savvy, they're not engineers. My wife's a civil engineer. And so, you know, sometimes I think we can lose focus to that when we're all we're talking about is engineering. And, you know, you understand that. And everyone we talk to in the ASCE world, they understand these challenges. But when you bring it down to what it's costing your family on a regular basis, and here's why it's costing you that, I feel like these are the kinds of conversations we need to have with people to get movement here.
1: Exactly. Because, you know, it's always about what's in it for me. If you want me to pay more for whatever it is that I'm doing, what's in it for me? When do I see the benefit out of it, right? And so I think it was really important. And um, I think we got great feedback from people on the the three individual reports and the summary report. And that gave us a much better perspective as we were, you know, working through it. We had 31 people from around the country with expertise in all the 17 areas. We all had to stand up in our subcommittees and, you know, kind of defend what we were doing and uh, had people shoot or salute us to And there were certain areas, there was like three or four areas that we had to take several meetings to get through issues, to make the hard decisions on what individual grades were going to be.
0: And this is kind of, I think, a lesson for everybody, whether it's in your career as an engineer or just in life in general, is that anytime you're trying to drive change, you need to have group of people most likely that is bought into that change and reports like this is what can kind of help us to get that buy-in from people out there and and that's something that you need to think about you want to start a new service line for your company you got to come to them with a reason you got to come to them with data you got to support that decision and you want to get a raise you got to support that why do you deserve that same thing happens in these type of bigger paradigms in terms of infrastructure if we want to get funding if we want to do things we got to take it down to the ground level and say this is how it's affecting you and your family, and this is what we need you to do to help us change that. Couldn't you know, agree with you more. <laughs> it's really exciting to see that, that those reports are being done now. We're you know, updated and we're able to show really relevant data, which is great. Maria, you are a nominee, as I mentioned, for ASC President-Elect 2022. Can you talk a little bit about your vision as a nominee?
1: I really want civil engineers to be leading the infrastructure of tomorrow and of our future world vision that we as an organization have really used a new tool in our toolbox, future world vision, to kind of articulate to people. Because our infrastructure is the design life of what we're seeing right now was 20 to 30 years, and it's functioning 50, 100 years out. Are we in a position right now to make decisions that have something that is still going to work in 50 to 100 years, right? So you've got to think about that long ball. I also think about the context of where we are right now. And I think we're at a confluence of crisis. You've got a public health crisis, you have an economic crisis, you have an equity crisis and infrastructure all at the same time. And infrastructure is really the key to all solving all four. Because from a public health crisis, as you build buildings and facilities that are more human-centric, we won't have as many issues as far as getting into a facility. So you're talking about you know, the HVAC and the filtration in the room, how we set things up in the offices of the future so that we won't all have to find alternatives in a very short period of time to stay in business. So I think there's a piece there and we certainly are involved in, you know, the hospitals and and the clinics and things like that. Then when you look at the economic piece, Every dollar spent on infrastructure, depending on where it is and what it is, brings back 4 to $6 in economic output for that community, all right? So it's definitely an economic solution. From an equity standpoint, many of the places where we've let infrastructure deteriorate are underserved communities or rural communities where we just haven't upgraded things to the level we should. And so as we're rebuilding the infrastructure, When we focus on that, you're going to provide more equity. There's also a huge potential now for workforce development to be able to get people in the industry and getting the people that were displaced through the pandemic into jobs. I'm really specifically concerned about the women because both the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal have said for every man displaced, there's four women that were displaced in the pandemic. And they're talking that there's generational consequences to this. We need more people in the industry. The construction industry from planning through design, construction, and operations and maintenance is more than 10% of the gross domestic product. So this is a great way to kind of, you know, the rising tide floats all boats. I really want engineers to lead on the infrastructure packages. We've really let other, the Ernst and Youngs and the KPMGs lead in the planning. But they don't have the multi-dimensional experience. They don't understand the system of systems. They have a sliver of the knowledge, and we've really like, as a profession, allowed ourselves to splinter so that you know we've got experts in thin lanes. And civil engineering is really about the broad scope, the stakeholders you mentioned before, how it fits into the community context. How does it handle, you know, the individual person? And so I think getting people more engaged in that and having civil engineers lead these multiple disciplinary projects is really going to be key. Obviously, I want to raise the grades. I mean, you have three kids. I have three kids and now three grandkids. If they brought home D's for 20 years, things would not be good at my house. I'm concerned about ASCE health. There's no such thing as a 501c3 that's healthy ever you know, it's always a struggle. And so I think we have to look at basically streamlining our internal overhead structures and how we deliver so that every last dollar we can push towards member services can be. So it's kind of a different paradigm. I'm very interested in diversity and inclusion. I told you, you know, my entire career, it's been an issue. 40 years ago, there weren't many other women in the room, which is actually a good thing. I never had to wait in line in a bathroom. Overall, numbers haven't changed drastically and we need to do better. And whether it's women or it's people of color, we just have to do better. We have to represent the communities that we work in. And then last, engaging our members. Civil engineering generally is graying and we don't have as many people coming into the pipeline and those that do come in, many of them are not joining ASCE. We need more younger members. We need to engage maybe our life members and our older members to help directly Mentor and get those younger members to get a head start because there was about 15 years that like 50% to 60% of civil engineers went to go work for the financial houses. They didn't come work in the industry. And so we have this gap in the middle of, you know, somewhere between 40 and 50, and maybe it's 35 to 45 or 42 to 52, but that mid career, we don't have big numbers there. And so we've got to get the younger engineers better skill sets, faster to be able to take on the more senior positions. And so I think that's going to be a lot of hand-to-hand work. So those are kinds of the things that I'm thinking about, streamlining and, you know, making it just a better foundation for the future to launch from.
0: Those are obviously like really important topics, and I'm glad to hear someone, your position, really focusing in on them because they are critically important. I mean, I left my civil engineering career to do training for civil engineers on project management, people skills. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing that 10 years ago, people didn't think that it was important. Now, today, with all the complex projects, I mean, we get calls every day from companies saying we need to skill up in these areas. So it sounds to me this is starting to happen in terms of scaling up engineers at younger ages in terms of these non technical skills that we really need to be leaders. And I'm glad people are starting to recognize it more. And in terms of the diversity, it's something I'm passionate about. I recently became a board member for a nonprofit, the GEMS Camp, where we try to educate girls in underserved communities about STEM topics. It's, a, it's something that I feel like a lot of people talk about needing more diversity, but we need to see more action on it. You mm-hmm. know, we need to roll up our sleeves and we need to get involved with it. So I hope that all of you listening out there, there are many outlets to do that and through ASCE, through other volunteer organizations, spend a couple hours a month when one of these organizations doing something, speak to one school, do one thing. And if we're all doing something, Again, it goes back to what we talked about before. If we want to drive any kind of change in our careers, we've got to take action. We've got to kind of team up and do it together. Yep.
1: The other thing that's scary to me about that, it's not just about pipeline. The uh, SWE, the Society of Women Engineers, did a survey a few years back, and they just refreshed it in 2019. And in the private sector, 30% of engineers are women. It's much better than it was, but it's still got a long way to go. But the statistic that came out of that survey that really concerned me is that seventy percent, seven zero of women leave engineering within twenty years of graduating. We have a retainage issue as an industry. And, you know, of those that left the profession, a third said that it was workplace culture. You talked about soft skills. There's lots of soft skills we got to get better at
0: Maria, switching gears a little bit back to your. Career, you've served as a principal in charge, project executive, program and project manager, and project engineer on you know more than seven hundred projects, which require everything from scoping, planning, environmental studies, preparation of plans, specs, estimates, construction management, from sizes from ten thousand to you know almost four billion dollars. I get a lot of civil engineers that tell me, you know, I really want to work on these mega projects. They sound so exciting, and I know you've been there and done that a little bit at a high level. You know, what are some of the things that you? need to be able to do to work on some of these really large projects, whether it's the skills you need or, you know, what is it about those projects that you need to be able to do?
1: Well, I think, you know, from being able to deliver the project, first of all, my advice to all young engineers is volunteer. Somebody asks that they want help in a certain area, whatever it is, volunteer, because you're going to learn a new skill in the process. There's an awful lot of reading you can do out there as far as why things are successful. From my perspective, having worked on two NEPA, you know, National Environmental Policy Act, federal projects with New York State layered on, which you have to mitigate more. Federal Highway says federal projects take 14 years. The average was a few years back from planning to getting it done. And environmental impact statements typically are five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years, right? You can do it in 13 months. I did it on two projects in 13 months. And it's about having a lot of baseline studies, but it's also about transparency. You need to have regular communication with the communities and the naysayers because you need to understand why they are stopping projects. I mean, people have learned how to use the process to stop projects. You need to understand that and you need to embrace the environmental process. It's not a bad, scary thing. You need to invest in the things that are important to the community And, you know, you're not talking about taking away 20% of a project budget. Community enhancements like pocket parks or providing a trail or allowing pedestrian and, and bicycle access on a bridge. Those are all things we never did before. And it wasn't really smart. So I think listening to the community and early and often communication is really important. And that's a really interesting part of what we do. We talked about that a little bit earlier. The other thing is, is that you really have to be transparent with what you're doing. So if you've got environmental performance metrics that you have to meet, you need to provide real time data that you're meeting them, that somebody can look on a website or can look on on an app if that project has an app or something specific and know that you're doing the right things. Now, that's scary to some people because what if it's not right? Well, things happen and then you have to address it. So this whole idea that an engineer tends to uh, talk too technical of a level for people to understand and, you know, don't worry about it, we'll take care of it, doesn't cut it anymore. People have to understand on a basic level what you're doing, why you're doing, how you're doing, and are you doing what you said you would do? When you do that, then you get successful projects. ASE's first woman present, Pat Galloway, um, she and her late husband and a late partner, Actually, wrote a project called Managing Giga Projects that's kind of a compendium of all that you need to know about everything. Wow. And it's got lots of resources. It's an ASCE Press book. It's a great go to guide and it gives you places to think about. So don't think you have to be working for a top, an ENR top 20 company to do that. We have a mutual friend who uh, is a partner in an MBE that she was an assistant project manager on a mega public-private partnership up at LaGuardia Airport. So a firm of 80 can play a real meaningful role on a mega project. But you do have to have a specialty, something you provide. But if you're looking for the steps to get there, do your homework. And it's out there. It's online. And look at the projects that were successful. And you will find those two things that I said are pretty consistent for those projects. Because I've been doing design build for about 20 years in the public sector. I did kind of a forensic uh, a few years back. And there's two or three things that all those projects had that were alike. And those are them.
0: Just two things that I want to kind of reinforce there from what Maria said. We have a slide in our communications training for engineers communicate early and often. When I was in college, our, one of our required reading books was The Power Broker, Robert Moses, and mm-hmm. talks about how they would just plow through communities and put you know, highways up and you that know, doesn't work. Now it's about getting involved with people, understanding mm-hmm. as civil engineers, we're creating the environment that people are actually going to use. So the best people to mm-hmm. talk to is the people that are using it. You know, if you want to come up with practical designs, now that doesn't mean we can do everything someone wants, but we could try to make compromises. We can try to serve the community in the way that they need to be served. So I think that that's a really good lesson for those of you out there that haven't maybe been involved with that aspect of projects, the approval process. For me, when I used to go to planning board meetings, you know, hearing from the board, hearing from citizens that would come to the meetings was very valuable because then you understand that I'm not just drawing something in CAD. People actually have to live here and walk around here and drive on these roads. And if I can get some feedback from them those are the people you want to get feedback from, right? Not just the experts who are going to be doing the design. You want to hear from some of the users. So I think that that's a really important point to really consider. The other point that Maria makes that's to really keep in mind is that you don't have to work for one of the largest engineering companies in the world to work on some of the largest projects. And sometimes I feel that engineers get into their careers and they kind of say like, oh, I really like this smaller company, but I feel like if I work there, I'm not going to work on like big, really interesting projects. And not the case. I mean, a lot of the way these projects are set up, there's a lot of companies that sub to larger companies. There's a lot of companies that get involved. If you're a specialty, like maybe a geotech company and you're subbing to a larger company on a, on a mega project, you're going to be able to do that. So don't feel that you got to go a certain way to work on a certain type of project. You need to develop the expertise as Maria suggested. You got to you know, build that expertise in a specific area. And that can allow you to do anything, really. Because if you're an expert and they need an expert, they're going to call you whatever company you work at. And so that's that's something that's really important just to keep in mind kind of in your career progression. And even those of you that aren't recent grads or younger engineers, you can teach that to your staff and you'll communicate with them, especially the communication aspect of things. Uh That's important. Maria, you talked about kind of your vision a little bit. A more specific question kind of around it is, how would you say that civil engineers need to lead the system of systems?
1: I mentioned before the whole midsection of engineers went to go work for financial firms. And the reason why they did that is that somebody who gets a finance degree wants to make their first million within a couple of years, and they don't pay attention to boundary conditions. Civil engineers, if you tell them, stay between these lines, they're staying between those two lines. That has to flip onto itself, okay? You got to go into places you're not comfortable. The problem that I see is that because we have these specialty niches making decisions for our profession that do not understand the implications of those decisions, make bad decisions that end up costing clients time and money. If you don't understand the whole profession of civil engineering was born because there was first there was military engineering and then became civil because it was non-military works. There was too much engineering to go around, and so civil engineering was born. And then every other branch of engineering came from civil engineering. So by definition, civil engineering is the whole package. If you have worked in enough pieces of that practice, you will know enough to ask the questions. I'll give you a great example. I was walking through, I was doing a walkthrough when I was at the county, on a new high-tech facility that it was post 9-11. We had a ballistics lab in there. We had an FBI forensics computer lab in there. We had DNA labs in there and just some normal regular labs, right? And because of that, the HVAC system was pretty complicated and we had to have a higher level to be able to take all that stuff out of the building. I'm not an HVAC person, but I'm doing the walkthrough and I'm looking at it and I said, why are they different colors of gray? shouldn't the galvanizing, if we're asking for a certain level, it should all be the same thing. The mechanical engineers had already signed out, nobody had thought twice. And I'm going, the colors aren't right. Somebody tell me why the colors are different. It turns out they weren't galvanized to the level they should be. Because I was thinking about it. You know, I just did the step back, look and think. We're trained for that. We're trained mm -hmm. to ask those questions as a profession. And so I really believe that these bigger projects really need to have a civil engineer at the home because you need to understand how all these pieces come together.
0: Between your job, your family, and your ASCE responsibilities, how are you able to juggle all of those?
1: You think about it one day at a time where you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. I think you have to be very organized. The managing the family and the work is really about having a spouse that's a partner, that's an equal partner. You and your wife are both civil engineers. My husband's a civil engineer too. You understand each other. And typically, both schedules aren't going haywire at the same time. So as long as you're full partners, you know, sometimes you're taking a heavier role in the family. Sometimes you're taking less of a heavy role. I think you have to chunk it. But I also think you have to think about what you're doing and how that matches to what you're doing on the non-for-profit side. So I've been involved in ASCE for 40 years, but I have not been actively involved that whole time because I was doing other community stuff. I was on the school board. Some of it has to do with taking, well, what my day job is and where it matches on the non-for-profit side so that one plus one equals three. So an investment in that extra really helps your business life as well as your professional life. So I think you have to make sure it matches and learn how to say no. Sometimes it's okay to say no.
0: There is a lot of overlap that you can take from one aspect of your life and bring it into another, whether it's volunteer to career, career to personal, and all the way around. And that is important. And you're right. If they line up and if you're volunteering in something that you're kind of working in, that does kind of make things easier because you feel like you're engaged with these things at both times, whether you're doing one or doing the other. It's kind of the same stuff. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to finish up by putting Maria on the civil engineering hot seat. Civil Engineering Podcast.
1: Civil Engineering Podcast.
0: All right, we're back with Maria Lehman, Director U.S. Infrastructure at GHD, official nominee worldwide ASC President elect 2022. Maria, are you ready for the civil engineering hot seat?
1: Born ready, pal.
0: Are there any specific rituals that you practice every day, maybe a specific morning routine, lunchtime routine, something that you do consistently on a daily basis that contributes to your success?
1: Actually, I do. And it was by pure accident, literally. I was uh, hit by a car as a pedestrian about 20 years ago, mm-hmm. took a ride on a hood and got thrown off and found the best thing for the two knees that it blew up and the two shoulders that, that were separated was a long soak in the morning. And so I get up in the morning and I get into our oversized tub and I just am for 20 minutes to a half hour. And it's kind of grounding and it, I don't start the day and fast forward it gives the ability for me to kind of think about what's coming and what order do I do it in. And once you're organized and planned in your head, the whole day goes better. So it's a physical and a mental component, but it's been great.
0: All right. So what's one book that you might recommend to engineers or could just be one book that you found to be extremely helpful for you in your professional or personal development efforts?
1: There's a couple of books. First of all, um, Robert Fulgham's all I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. It's a fast read. If you if somebody out there hasn't read it, read it. It's basically about be nice and play well with others. And there will be things in there that you will hear in your head every day in your life. I was a chapter author in a book called Ready for Takeoff, which was based on a uh, all-engineering uh, summer program at the University of Buffalo. It was about 20 years long, and it was all the soft skills of engineering and Dean Miller who ran that class actually wrote this book with all the people that he brought in from industry to lecture in his classes and it talks about everything from writing and it's geared more for college students but it's certainly appropriate for early professionals because it's everything from you know your resume and your interview to patents and what that means in companies i always did an ethics and professionalism class how do you manage a project you know where do you get Resources to learn various pieces, so it's kind of a go-to book, and um, I think it's a prentice book, and it's great to just even freshen up on some things. Is you know, I like going back to some of these basic go-tos when you're starting up something new and big to kind of make you rethink about all those pieces that maybe some of them you haven't used in a while.
0: Next one, thinking back on some of your managers throughout your career. And, you know, you don't have to name names specifically, but if you think about some of your favorite managers along the way, what made them your favorite? What characteristics, what skill sets, why were they your favorite?
1: The favorite managers I had cared about me as a person before they cared about me as an engineer. My first mentor, Harry Quinn, who passed away a few years back was there and you could talk to him up at anything in your life that was a problem and it would never taint his opinion of you at work. And I remember being on um, maternity leave with my second son. I was going to be out for three months and my mother was having health issues at the time. And so like I was the sandwich person And how do you deal with all these crazy things? And he called me because we were doing an interstate job and I was the hydraulics engineer on the project. And he really, and this was before, you know, you had a computer at home. We had computers, but nowhere near as friendly as they are now. And uh, he said, I really need your help. I want you to take a look. It's going to be, you know, part-time a couple of weeks. And I said, I have a four-year-old and a newborn. How do you suppose? I'm...? He says, well, you can take some stuff home. And I know because I did have a computer at home, not connected to the one at work. But he says, you can come in for a half a day. I miss my grandchildren. Bring them in. Just bring some toys. I'm going to close my door. I'll play with them. You figure out what you need. Take what you <laughs> need home. And then, you know, we'll do it in reverse in a few weeks. That's when you know you've got somebody who's got your back. I mean, he definitely had a need, but he knew he had to help me to help him. That's the kind of story. I mean, somebody like that, you're a lifer behind a person like that.
0: You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that is important in management and leadership is the people side of leadership that sometimes, you know, we don't talk about enough or we don't spend enough time on. I mean, here at EMI, one of the things we do when we start our staff meetings is, you know, how's life? not what project you're working on this week, how are the kids, what's going on, you know, and it's important. I mean, listen, you work with people, you spend more time with them often than you do your family members. So you have to kind of create that almost a family culture with them as well. And you have to, you know, understand their needs and help them. So I'm glad that you brought that.
1: Anthony, I got to tell you, it's even more important in the public sector because in the private sector, you can give people a bonus. You can give them a spot bonus. You can give them a raise. You can give them something to do that's interesting. In the public sector, all those tools that you have for management on the private side aren't mm. there. Right. And so it's about finding interesting work for people. And it's about people understanding you really care. When I was head of operations for the Thruway, the first snowstorm, I was out wing and they said, oh, we'll give you a little run and then we'll come back. I said, no, I'm going on a beat on the wing. No, you're not going to have a chase truck. And I was actually tweeting the pictures saying... Stay off the road. This is what it looks like right now, right? So when they know that you're gonna walk a mile in their shoes, every time we had an emergency operations center set up somewhere in the state, I always showed up at some crazy hour with, you know, coffee and goodies and whatever. When you care about people on a one-on-one basis, they will move mountains for you.
0: When you think about ASCE, for example, as president, whether Mm -hmm. you're president of your local chapter or state or, or national, you're leading volunteers. A similar idea you know these people are, are coming to the table because they want to not because they're being paid to not because mm-hmm. it's their job you know like their, their everyday nine to five job that again goes to leading people having a good vision that you want to try to move people towards because not an easy thing to do but again the way that we achieve things in these types of industries is we have to have organizations like ASCE, we got to try to keep them strong and that happens. Uh, yes, there's great people that work there that maybe are employed there, but you also have only count on a lot of volunteers. And so the leaders in these organizations have a real task on their hand in terms of leading people in that mindset. That's really important. All right. I've got one final question here for you, Maria, which we call the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and you had about 30, 40 seconds with him or her and had to give him or her career advice in that very short period of time, what would it be?
1: Learn something really well so you're an expert and volunteer your ability to do it.
0: It's something that'll get you out there. You'll learn through it. You'll meet people through it. And I've learned through my own volunteer work, it brings enjoyment to you. And if you Mm -hmm. can't have fun and if you can't enjoy your career, then what are we doing here? You know, what are we talking about? Maria Lehman, I want to thank you for spending some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. I wish you all the best in your future career endeavors. And I know that you're going to be a leader no matter what you do in terms of leading civil engineers in the future. So thank you for doing it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Maria Lehman, as I said, she's a really accomplished civil engineering professional, and she just has such a wide breadth of knowledge around the profession. And it was kind of exciting to have her share that and also to share kind of her vision for the future. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we'll also be interviewing in the next episode, Peter Moore. Peter Moore is the other nominee for 2022 ASC president-elect. And you know we wanted to have both of them come on the podcast and we're excited to have the platform to be able to do just that. Now, before I tell you where you can find the show notes for this episode, I want to remind you that we do regularly put on several training programs for engineering professionals to help you to be able to build the people skills and the project management skills and even the seller doer business development skills that just aren't taught to us in school. We have our engineering management accelerator series that consists of courses in all of those different skill sets. You can learn more about them by visiting engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Simply click on the training tab and you'll find the curriculum. You'll find testimonials and praise from other engineers that have gone through it. And you can always call us for more information at 800-920-4007. That's 800-920-4007. Those courses are done over and over and you can enroll in them or enroll people from your firm or we can do a custom one for your firm. Again, that's 800-920-4007. So with that, let me remind you that you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 169. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. And until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.